In the New Testament, there are 56 one another commands that God gives us to instruct how we are as Christians to relate to one another, to interact with one another. And these things are designed not only to guide our behavior and shape what we do and how we do it, but they're, they're also designed to push us deeper into our reliance upon God. Because these commands that we have been unpacking for the last four weeks and that we'll talk about today, they are quite overwhelming to think about trying to do all on our own, right? We cannot live up to this standard unless the Lord is empowering us and enabling us to do so. And so as we hear these things, we're going to hear a command and we're going to need to learn to apply that. And we're going to realize how just short we fall at trying to do that. But we will then be driven to the grace of God who will empower us and enable us to live these things out. This morning, as I said, is our last week, and we're going to look at the most repeated of these 59 one another commands. 16 out of the 59 include this phrase, a phrase you're very familiar with, I'm sure. The call is to simply love one another. Now, in some ways, with this one command, you would think this is the simplest command of all. This is the easiest week in the whole series. We've done the hard work, and now we're just going to crest right over the edge and and, uh, be done But really, what I would submit to you this morning is that this phrase, this command, love one another, is really not the simplest, not the base level of all the commands. It's like the capstone. It's at the very, very top. And this capstone is only reachable. We can only fulfill this command to love one another if we are understanding and applying all that we have already seen and heard from God in these weeks before. What we're going to hear this morning is that What it means to truly love one another is a broad command. It is a categorical statement. I think what we ought to do when we read any of these 16 times in the New Testament that we are told to love one another is we have to go back and we have to think through and remember all of those other verses that we've read and referenced all throughout this series to really figure out how do we apply doing this thing of loving one another in our relationships. This morning, I am going to unapologetically give you a lot of scripture. And so what I I might encourage you to do is to write down the references. You can do that with a note on your phone. You can snap uh, pictures of the screen if that works for you. Or if you have a journal, write those things down. It's going to be probably a lot easier for you today than trying to flip to each reference because we're going to hear God say over and over again all the things that he has been saying to us throughout this whole series. And we're going to start with this reading of the very first time, it's very clearly, very challenging words that come from Jesus himself in his earthly ministry that kind of start this theme that's repeated all throughout the New Testament and found, as we'll end today, in some of the last letters that were ever written in the New Testament era. Going to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, looking at verses 34 and 35, this is what Jesus himself teaches to his disciples. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And from the very start of this series, as we began it all these weeks ago, five weeks ago, we've heard over and over and over again this basic truth that how we relate to one another really does matter. Our relationships are important. They're real. They have impact upon us and upon others. Just last week, we talked about the reality that that our relationships impact us sort of internally, if you will, within the church body. That was what we were focused upon last week, but that's not all that our relationships have impact on. It has impacts on our communities as well. Our relationship speaks externally 
beyond the church as well as internally within the church. Jesus tells us this very thing in the passage, doesn't he? It is by our love for one another that people will know if we are his disciples. That's what the text says. So what this means is if people can look at us and see love for one another displayed as a testimony, a proof that we are God's people, then the opposite side of that is true as well, isn't it? If people look at us and we are not loving one another, as the Bible defines love, then we are not fulfilling our responsibility. We are not living up to the expectations, the intentions of God for us as his people. Put simply, we are not being the witnesses that God has called and created us to be. And this is crucial for us to understand today as we bring everything together in this message. If we do not love one another, what that may reveal is that we are not truly his disciples. Not really one of his people at all. It's why this whole series is so important. It's why hearing and understanding and then submitting to and living out these commands really does matter. These things are eternally significant things. They're indicators of whether or not we are truly the Lord's people, his disciples, followers after him. The Bible tells us very clearly that people may take the name of Christ. They may claim to have a connection to Jesus or God generically in some sense. People may want to be seen as one of his people for some benefit they think that they can derive. But unless there is obedience to God, unless we obey his command, unless we reflect his love in our relationships, then we should understand there's a warning light going off. And this warning light that goes off when we don't live according to this text, this warning light is telling us we must carefully look at what is happening because there's a problem that needs to be addressed. Just like the warning light that comes on in the car. If it comes on and goes off right when you start up, you don't think too much about that. If it comes on and stays on, you need to figure out what's happening, right? There's a problem that needs to be addressed. And if a light is on for a long period of time, aside from all you farm truck guys who's like, no, it's fine, I looked at it now. But you looked at it, you have some level of confidence, right? That it's just a faulty light or whatever. But if you have a light come on and you don't check it, you don't look at the problem, you're headed for devastating destruction. The love or the lack of love in our relationships is a diagnostic tool that can reveal where our hearts really are. That's why this matters. That's why we need to spend five weeks looking at these things, unpacking them, considering our own lives, our own actions, our own hearts, because this can show us where we really are in relationship, not just to one another, but to the Lord himself. So jumping ahead just two chapters in John's gospel, Jesus says the same thing again, gives the same command again, and begins to point us to what we'll come back to at the very end is the most perfect expression of love that there ever has been that should motivate us, that should cause us to be reflecting him in our daily interactions, our relationships. John chapter 15, verses 12 to 17 say this, Jesus speaking again, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And listen carefully to these next verses. For greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask 
the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Notice what he's saying in this important text here. Because he's explaining to us what true love really is. It's not just found in saying those simple words, I love you, to someone else. The emphasis on what true love is, biblically defined, is more often than not found in action. Jesus is pointing here to the actions, the fruit, the obedience to the commands as living out love. He says that's what love looks like, what you do, how you obey, the fruit you bear, the obedience you have. That's true love. Often in this church, we've recognized the fact that our modern society defines love very differently, very shallowly compared to the Scripture. In a modern society, love's love's primarily emotional, right? It's just a feeling. Maybe it's the words that we say, but it's a concept. It's a a fleeting concept. It's kind of ethereal, ever-changing. You can fall in or out of love easily, right? You can love something deeply and passionately one day and then hate it the next day because you don't control love. It's just something you feel or don't feel. That's what our society tells us about love, but the biblical view of love is something so much more deeper. Is there feeling involved in love biblically? Absolutely. Are the emotions present in biblical love? Yes. Is love expressed by the words that we speak? Of course they are, but it's so much more than just that. Love is defined more by our actions than our words in the biblical worldview. That's what we're hearing in this text. Jesus is pointing to the actions that we take, the obedience that we have, the fruit that we bear. That is love according to the Bible, not just the words we speak. Biblical love is primarily action-oriented. It has to be lived out in what is done, not just professed as a feeling we have inside of us or some ethereal statement or concept. So this is where we have to go back then and understand this. If this command to love one another is the capstone and we need to understand loving one another in terms of action, we go back to everything then we have looked at in this entire series to understand how does love act? What does love do? To love one another, first of all, means we don't do certain things. Like we don't lie to one another, Colossians 3.9 tells us. We do not act conceited in a provoking way, or envy one another, according to Galatians 5, 26. We do not speak evil or grumble against one another, according to James 4, 11 and 5, 9. We're careful that we do not fall into the trap of comparison with one another, according to 2 Corinthians 10, 12. We do not attack or even sue one another over trivial matters, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 7. We do not become judgmental and claim to be more spiritual than one another, because of what we do or don't do, according to Romans 14, 13. Because the Bible tells us all those actions, these do-not actions, they're really the opposite of love. They are the actions of hating one another that we're warned against in Titus 3, 3. And we're told that living in those actions leads to destruction, being consumed fully, according to Galatians 5, 15. So listen, the point is this. No matter what you say, if you say you love someone or not, if you persist in acting in these ways that God says we are not to act, you demonstrate you do not really love those people. That's what this reveals. But hear this, it's if we live persistently in these ways. If it's it's persistent in our lives, then it's the warning light that's not going off, right? 
And we need to stop and we need to examine things carefully. Because do we lapse into some of these things that we just read that we ought not do? Are there times when we do the things we are told not to do? Yes, of course, for every one of us. Why? Because we're all born sinful. Because our battle with this sinful nature is a daily war that's waged within us. Our sanctification is progressive, not immediate. When you come to faith in Jesus, there's not a bright light that shines down from heaven and then all of a sudden everything's changed and you're good and there's no more struggles and it's just coasting on to eternity, right? There's a real work, a real change that begins, but it grows over time. We are being sanctified. We are being made more like Christ in our actions all throughout this pilgrim journey of life that we are on. And at times, what that means is the reality is we will lose some battles. We will give in to sin. We will at times do these things God says not to do. But we need to take those moments seriously because if we persist in these sinful things, doing the things God says not to do, living in these ways God says do not live, then the warning light is coming on, it's staying on, and it means more than just we've lost a single battle, we should be concerned about the war. Persisting in sinful action may be what God is using to reveal something much deeper, that sin may still be in control of our hearts. True salvation may never have really been experienced by us. That's how serious this is. If we live in the do-nots, something is deeply broken. And we need to examine that. Christians are warned against persisting in these sinful ways because they are the actions of hatred and they lead to destruction. And as a Christian, that is not what we are created for, saved for. We are made to live in love and righteousness, called to live in a manner that reflects the one who has saved us. So to summarize how we ought to live using the language of this series the last several weeks, we are told in Scripture that we need to truly know one another through the text that we've looked at, like Romans 15, 7, which tells us, therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. Galatians 6, 2 tells us, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 says, encourage one another and build one another up. Hebrews 3.13 tells us, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When we truly know one another and are known by one another, it will mean that conflict arises in our relationships. It will mean that disagreements happen. It will mean that offense will be given and taken. And so, This verse that's really become the theme verse of this whole entire series for us is where God tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 11 that we are to aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of peace and love will be with you. And we're told to know one another. And the Bible defines and shows us what knowing one another looks like. Not enough to just, I think I know their name. Hey, how are you today? Good, good, right? It's much deeper than that. We're told that not only do we need to know one another, but we need to focus our lives upon worshiping God with one another. Text that we've looked at in this series, like Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, where we're told, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Colossians 3, 16 and 17 tells us, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Peter 4.10 says to us as well, Each of you have received a gift, so use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We are made to be people whose lives are fully oriented, fully orbiting around Jesus as the center. That is all about him and the worship of him personally and then corporately when we come together. He's the foundation for everything in our lives. And as Christians who are called to know one another and to worship God with one another, we're then called to commit to one another. And perhaps that's the most countercultural statement of the whole series, isn't it? We live in a day and age where division is not only deeper than I think it's ever been before, but it's reached so much quicker than it ever was before. But our God says to truly love one another means we must commit to one another and do the hard work of obeying his commands. Commands that are very uncomfortable, like James 5.16, which tells us, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with, what does that look like? It's this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Colossians 3, 12 to 13, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Romans 15, 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like to commit to one another. Pursuing that in the midst of whatever else takes place. Doing those things in the midst of all the difficulties that come in this life. And because we all fail, because we all do sin at times, the repeated command is there. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Our lives are to aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Loving one another means that we are going to have to commit to one another and grow with one another. Growing with one another means remembering, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 26, that God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. For if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 15, tell us, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 
It's going to take growing with one another because none of us have obtained maturity and perfection yet. I know that's true for every single one of us because we're here. We're not made perfect until the day we stand in eternity with Jesus Christ, our Savior, face to face. Until that point, we all have to grow with one another. So we have to understand that committing to one another and growing with one another is what it looks like practically to really love one another. And doing that means understanding the seriousness and the reality of sin. The only way to aim for restoration in our relationships, the only way to seek to live in true peace with one another, is to engage in the work of confronting sin. Putting to death sin in our own lives and helping those around us do the same thing too. It's following the example of Jesus who did not ignore our sin. He didn't pretend that our sin wasn't there. He engaged us. He went to the cross for us. He understood sin is serious. It's a life and death matter. And so Jesus chose death on our behalf that we could have life. So we have to remember and live out those words of 2 Corinthians 13, 11, to aim for restoration, aim for peace, and do what James tells us in James chapter 5, 19 to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I want us to be really, really clear on this. Loving one another means taking sin seriously and caring about souls more than comfort or convenience. It's hard work. It's really uncomfortable work. But this is what it means to truly love one another. God takes sin seriously because of his love. Jesus tells us he takes sin seriously because of his love. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He loves his people far too much to let us wander about in sin, headed for destruction. God takes sin seriously, so he reproves us, he rebukes us, he calls us to repentance. That means we as people who love him and want to be like him must do the same for those that we love. We have to take sin seriously and we have to love one another enough that we would seek to grow with them and see sin mortified in us and in those around us. All of these things put together is what it means to truly love one another. So that's why I said this command is the, it's the pinnacle. It's the top of the mountain. It's built upon everything else that we've looked at and studied all these things that we've heard today and the other half of the verses that we didn't read today. It, this phrase, love one another, encompasses all of these things. All these specific application texts are what it looks like for you and I to truly love one another. It means applying all of these things, all the do's, all the do nots of the 56 one another commands. It means we have to put to death the natural, sinful things that we want to do, but God says don't do. It means to come alive to the incredibly difficult, demanding commands that God says this is how you should live. 
ways that reflect his character and his word. And let's be clear, to do this, to actually obey God and live out love for one another in a way that reflects him, it requires a transformed heart. None of us can accomplish living in biblical love for one another on our own. You do not have this capacity to live out all these commands in your own strength, by your own effort. None of us can truly love apart from him. Listen, really, what we call love, think about the depth of what we feel and we experience and we define as love. It is only a pale comparison, a shadow to the true thing. True love is only found from God and only given through us from God to others. His love is far greater than anything we can ever imagine or feel or experience. And so when we are told love one another, the repeated word that's used in the Greek throughout this is agape, God's love. That's what we should reflect towards one another. You should have God's love for one another. That's over and over and over again. And the only way to do that is to experience God's love, to be given God's love, and then pass that on to others. You can't create it in yourself. You don't have it naturally within your capacity. Doing these things is only possible if you've been born again by the grace and mercy of God. If you are trusting in him alone for salvation, experiencing his work in you, then flowing through you. It's only possible if his spirit is living inside of us, transforming us, empowering us to be obedient to all these commands that we are given in the scriptures. We cannot do these things truly or perfectly or consistently by our own strength or by our own efforts, no matter how hard you try, no matter how long you're at it. So in the very last of the New Testament letters that were written, they're the three personal letters that the last living apostle, John, wrote. And John comes back to this phrase, love one another, over and over again. In fact, six of the 16 commands we find just in 1 John and 2 John alone. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, he writes, This is the message that you heard from the beginning, drawing back on what Jesus himself said in his teaching, that we should love one another. John wants us to understand this phrase is the central ethical command that God gives us. It's the categorical statement that everything else is to flow out of. We are called to love one another as God defines and demonstrates love for us. This should be our heartbeat. This should be our motivation. This should be what drives us day by day in every single relationship we have. And so it's what leads to this very crucial passage 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, where John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So again, just notice how high the stakes are here. Without loving one another, as God defines it, John flatly states, we do not know God. We are not his people. No matter what else we do, how often we attend church, what we claim to be about ourselves, what religious practices we hold to, if we are without love for one another, it is because we have not experienced his saving love at work in us. 
So this is why we heard so strongly last week, God saying that we should not dwell in anger for it gives opportunity to the enemy. Why God told us, do not let your hearts turn against one another. Do not live in darkness. Do not live in the lies and deceit that so naturally feel comfortable to us. Do not play with sin that will bring destruction. Do not live in ways that reveal actually hatred of one another. God warns us against all of that because, as I said earlier, if we are living persistently in those ways, we are not truly recipients of God's saving love because his love in us changes us and transforms us. Again, we all do struggle. There are moments where we give in to the things we ought not give in to. We fail to live as we should. We're not perfect yet. The Bible's clear about that. Yet, if we persist in not loving one another, we stay in the anger and the bitterness, the malice, whatever else it may be, then the warning light is on. The danger is very real and present. And the diagnostic may be we do not love others because we have not truly experienced real love. That's why it's so important here. It's why we have to take it so seriously. The stake that we're playing for here is eternal life or eternal death. To be saved, we have to know what true love really is. We have to have experienced true love at work in us and have been transformed by that true love. It's why John continues with the most important statement, the most important truth about love that there is in all of the scripture. First John chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. In this, in this, what he's about to say The love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We have to understand this clearly. It is God's love which changes us. It is his love which transforms us. His love is that which can remove the guilt and the stain that all of us have upon our souls by our sinful nature and by our sinful actions. And it is his love that begins to instill in us righteousness and a longing to be more like him. This is what strikes my heart so Deeply, when we see sin, we have to take it seriously because the stakes are eternal. Without love at work in us and being seen through us, there's a dangerous, dangerous reality that could be present. That's why for the last five weeks, I wake up every night praying for hearts that are held captive right now by anger and bitterness and lies and hatred begging God, pour out your love so that love would flow through them. Change by your love. Because God warns us if we do not love one another, we do not truly know him or his love. So it's why we have to respond today, every one of us. The gospel changes everything, and it is the power of the gospel that is the answer to our deepest needs and our most difficult situations. John tells us God's love is a redeeming, reconciling, saving, transforming type of love. And this love was made manifest at the death of Jesus Christ. Understand the heart of the gospel is this. God's love is initiating and pursuing. 
God's love is not reactionary to us. He's not waiting to see if we'll earn his love. He's not looking at the works that we may do to see if we deserve justification, if we've gotten high enough to earn this. No, he is the one who loves first. He is the one who draws sinners to himself. He is the one who saves those who come to him with faith alone in him alone, asking for his grace alone to justify and reconcile them. God does not love those who offer up our good works, try to earn his love through obedience or sacraments or the gifts that we give him. God saves those, loves those, who come to him in faith alone, relying upon Christ alone, trusting that his grace alone will save us. This is the only grounding for us to be able to experience and to live out true biblical love for one another, is if we have experienced and been transformed by his love demonstrated at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's by us believing and trusting, daily remembering, living in light of the gospel message alone. John grounds everything we are to do in what Christ has done. 1 John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, look to the cross. If God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. It's why Paul said in Ephesians 4.32, as we read, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3 says the same thing. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgive one another. Why? Because the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. That's why the theme verse is the command, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace because of the promise of the rest of that verse that the God of love and peace will be with you. This is who God is. This is what God has done in the gospel. He has demonstrated and defined true love for us. He's made peace with us. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's restored us and reconciled us to himself through not our works, not what we do, but through the work and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Christians are called to live in light of the gospel, to believe it and to apply it every day. This is true love. So today, we have one last chance after our fifth week, five weeks now of responding and examining our own hearts, examining our lives, looking at our own heart to say, is the warning light on somewhere? Is there something I'm living in that I shouldn't be? Am I persisting in some way that may reveal something really deeply broken about myself? Today we have the opportunity to respond. No matter what we're experiencing, no matter what we're feeling, no matter what we're facing relationally, we have the chance to hear God speak through all of these texts that he has spoken to us today and to believe the gospel and to live in light of it. Today is the day to experience the power of God's transforming and redeeming love, the love that took Jesus Christ to the cross, the love that took our sins from us and placed them on him, the love that takes his righteousness, his perfection, and imputes that to us, covers us, so that we can be restored and reconciled and redeemed and at peace with the one true holy God 
who we have offended countless times by our sins. The love that God has for all those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ alone. The love that leads to us asking him to save us by his grace alone. To transform us and empower us. To live out all of these application things that he has given to us. The calls to respond and apply the gospel personally today. And it's not just a call to the non-Christian. It is certainly a call to those who have never put their faith in Christ alone. It is the call to you today. Respond to the gospel. Rely upon him alone. Experience his love. Lean on his love, not your works, not your performance, so that you can truly be saved. And it's the call to every Christian in this room too today. Respond to the gospel. Ask Yourself, are we living in love for one another, applying what God says so that it can truly and clearly be seen that we are his disciples? Are we experiencing and responding to his love in our life so that we truly live in love towards one another? Or today do we see the areas that we need to repent of, the things we need to do to turn away from this path of destruction that sin leads us down and again receive and be transformed by his love for us? Morgan and Tyler are going to come and they're going to lead a final song for us this morning. And we have just a few minutes to respond to God and to his word. To think over what has been said to us. If you've been here for five weeks, to reflect on all five weeks of this. If today is the only sermon you heard in this, then to reflect on what you've heard today. The words of God spoken today through the scriptures. And to respond to the gospel. As we do every single week, if you would like to pray, I'm available, would love to pray with you. You can come to the altars, you can kneel down up here and pray in this place, you can turn around and pray at the pew that you're in, you can get up and walk around the room, whatever you need to do, this is time where the living God is ready to respond to you as you respond to what he has said this morning. So I don't know if any of you know this song, it's a, it's a great song talks about Jesus being the center of everything and it's just going to call us to reflect on that. Is he really the center? Is his love the center or is something else right there motivating us, driving us? And if it is, today we repent. I challenge each one of us, don't waste these moments. Don't waste, don't miss this opportunity. Before you leave this place, respond to the God who's here to the God whose love is real and changing and transforming. That when we walk out of this place, we reflect the one who loved us so much that God himself would die for our sins. Let's respond this morning. Lord, I pray that every heart in this room would be firmly fixed upon you that you would reveal in this moment the, the central place of your cross, that it is there in the scorn, it is there in the blood, it is there in the price for sin being paid, that love is ultimately and fully seen. Lord, that that would be what every heart in this room is fully trusting in, is, is your work, your declaration. It is finished. That from that, from that expression of your love, perfect and complete, we would draw every strength we need 
to live out all of these commands that you have given to us. That you would give us the boldness, Lord, to confront these areas where we fall short, these battles that we are losing. We would look to you, the great captain, the overcomer, the victor. Lord, I pray that every heart, every mind in this room would center on you would know you are true love, would rely upon you, would seek you, would trust in you and you alone. Let us set aside every other reliance, every other thing we may be tempted to lean upon. Let us abandon all our works and rely fully and only upon you. We thank you for your love, for your grace, and for your mercy, for your transforming power that is at work among your people. We ask you to fill us, enable us to obey, enable us to live, that we would walk out of this place new, changed, because of what we have experienced and what you have done in us. Lord, help us to truly love one another. It's in your beautiful, powerful loving name that we pray. And everyone said together, amen. Amen.